Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, Michigan's Attorney General has indicted nine state officials, including former Governor Rick Snyder, the state's former health director, and two of the emergency managers of the city of Flint, for exposing at least 100,000 people to dangerous levels of lead in their drinking water, and an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease that killed at least 12 people and sickened many more. In an op-ed for The Hill, Michigan Congressman Dan Kildee called the 2014 decision to switch the source of Flint's drinking water one of the greatest environmental injustices in our lifetimes. Which is true, but the environment didn't do it. It's often forgotten that Flint was a crisis of democracy. Decision-making had been taken out of the hands of Flint's elected officials and given to an emergency manager, tasked with reining in costs a system that seems to be used disproportionately in communities of color, taking decision-making out of community hands but leaving them to deal with the fallout of those decisions. There's been a $640 million settlement of class action lawsuits, but Michigan Radio reports that many civic leaders say the deal presents inappropriate hurdles. Children might not get their settlement if they don't undergo a specific bone lead test. And some question how money could ever compensate Flint residents for months and months of washing and bathing and cooking with bottled water to avoid exposing themselves and their families to a neurotoxin, all while officials deflected and denied and belittled their concerns. We've talked about Flint on Counterspin in its particulars and in terms of how it fits into bigger questions around environmental racism and resource control and local governance. In light of the renewed attention around the story, which has not ended even as media have looked away, we're going to revisit some of those conversations today. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. While Flint's water became a symbol, a meme even, around the world of environmental racism and government indifference, it was mainly local reporters who really tracked the political actors and actions behind what was not at all a natural disaster. In January 2016, we talked with Chris Savage, owner-publisher of the Michigan-based electablog.com, about the chain of events. The whole thing really began in 2013. Prior to uh, that Flint had been considering changing where it got its water. It wasn't on getting its water from the city of Detroit through their Detroit Water and Sewerage Department. They had a nearly 50-year contract with them. However, the water was very expensive. So they have some of the highest water costs in the country, actually, in Flint, Michigan. They joined up with other regional concerns like Genesee County and other groups around the area and decided to form what was called the Karagandi Water Authority, and they're building a pipeline and a water treatment plant to provide their own water rather than purchasing it from Detroit. That happened in April of 2013. Several days after they did that, the Detroit Water and Sewerage Department exercised its option to cancel their current contract with the city of Flint, which meant they had to give one-year advance notice. This was done, by the way, with Detroit being under an emergency manager as well. So both cities were actually under the control of emergency managers at the time who were making all of the decisions for the the local government. So what transpired in the following year was that Flint had to make some decisions about where they were going to get their water or if they were going to renegotiate their contract with Detroit. Just prior to when uh, Detroit's contract ended with them in April of 2014, 
the Detroit Sewer and Water Department sent Darnell Early, who was at the time the Flint Emergency Manager, a letter saying you can stay on our system and you're not being kicked off, but they were going to renegotiate the contract. And of course, because of this, their water rates were going to go even higher. And I, I find some brutal irony in this that both cities are under emergency managers, and yet you have one city basically exploiting the other city for higher water costs. Right. So Darnell Early at that point just sent them a letter back saying thanks but no thanks. He had made the decision they were going to go to the Flint River. And in April of 2014, that is when that happened. And that really was the fateful decision, that, that decision not to remain on Detroit water, but to switch to the Flint River in the interim while the Karagandi pipeline was being completed. I should say is the idea that they would go to Flint had been considered in the past, and a report was sent to the state of Michigan in 2013 telling them that going to the Flint River would require um, considerably more water treatment, including phosphate treatments to prevent the uh, mineral scale and biofilm on the insides of people's pipes from being eroded away and revealing the lead solder underneath. It's that lead solder in the pipelines going from the main uh, water line in the streets to people's homes that is the source of the lead in people's drinking water. They made the switch in April 2014. Almost immediately, people in Flint began to report uh, just disgustingly discolored water coming from their taps. Water smelled foul. People were getting rashes. People were getting sick. They found that there was high levels of E. coli, so there was a boil water alert for some time. They began treating with chlorine to fix that problem. And because of the overtreatment with chlorine, they started creating methanes, which are a byproduct of disinfection. They exceeded the Clean Water Act with the regulations on those that had to be treated. So they had a lot of problems before the lead issue manifested itself. It took a while for that, that water of the Flint River, which is more corrosive of the Detroit River, to sort of erode away this coating that's on the inside of these pipelines. And it was basically around January of uh, 2015 that the lead problems started to become manifest. Reports that were being sent to Michigan's Department of Environmental Quality, which is in charge of approving all water treatment plans for municipalities, they had been doing testing according to guidelines, and they were using the guidelines incorrectly. They were supposed to be testing 100 different high-risk homes at the tap, and then if the lead level in the 90th percentile was above 15 parts per billion, then they were supposed to take action. This is required by federal law. They had only taken actually 72 samples, which they were supposed to take 100, and some of those had spiked pretty high, putting them into the action zone in the 90th percentile. And so people that were responsible for that reporting were instructed by DEQ to remove two of the samples, and that brought them down below the action level of 15 parts per billion, and so they could continue on without further treatment. The ironic part about this, and the really just disgusting part about this, is that that phosphate treatment would have cost them about $60 per day to do. It was very inexpensive to do this phosphate treatment, which is very effective at maintaining that film that covers the lead and protects the water from being exposed to lead. But the DEQ signed off on the treatment that did not include the phosphate, and that's why the Snyder administration, Governor Snyder is our, is our governor, and his administration is complicit in this. And I do give a lot of credit to our local media. I don't always do that, Janine, but <laughs> the Detroit Free Press, the Detroit News, MLive, these, these organizations have done a very good job over the last couple of years in sort of following the story and making sure that people knew what was going on. In an interesting turn, the ACLU actually hired a investigative journalist, Kurt Guyette, and he's done a lot of the FOIA work and has revealed a lot of the information that we have today that has shined the light on the Snyder administration and, and the ways that they have so tragically failed the Flint residents. There were those who claimed that the fact that Flint is a predominantly African-American and predominantly poor community had nothing to do with the poisoning of their water. 
We talked around such people in February 2016 with Talia Buford, then a reporter at the Center for Public Integrity, working on a series called Environmental Justice Denied. She filled us in on the role of agencies like the EPA. I think that what we see in Flint is a failure on a number of different levels, failure from the city level to the state level to the federal level. EPA has a role, of course, as an overseer of the Michigan Environmental Agency. The Michigan Department should be probably the one that has a bigger responsibility than the federal agency since they are working in conjunction with the state. But I think that everyone here had something that they did where they fell off the job. A headline of a piece that you co-wrote recently was environmental racism persists and the EPA is one reason why. Those are strong words. You've talked about the Office of Civil Rights. What did your investigation turn up about the actual track record of that office? In our investigation, we looked at more than 15 years of complaints that citizens had filed to the EPA Office of Civil Rights. These are minority communities, often low income, but not always, who are saying we live next to a sewage plant that makes it horrible for us to sit outside on our porches, or there are pesticides being sprayed on the fields next to our schools. So what we found is that over the 22-year history of the office, the agency only had about 300 complaints, and they've never made a formal finding of a Title VI violation. They've made one preliminary finding and, and there have been, you know, some investigations, but they've never come out and said, Texas or Indiana or, you know, whatever state, you are violating Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And that struck us as something, uh, especially over decades-long history, that you can't find one bad actor when we know that there are so many of these cases. We hear about them all the time. To hear that there's been no wrongdoing, it it struck us as kind of odd. So in our investigation, what we also found is that only 12 of those cases that the EPA has found, they've closed with any actual official action. That means they've either negotiated or had some sort of informal settlement. The rest of them were all resolved among the complainants or or the agencies or, or dismissed. And then even beyond that, there are several cases, almost 20, that have been just waiting in limbo, waiting for EPA to act in some way. In some cases, they've been waiting more than a decade. Your thoughts on journalistic coverage of this? I was thinking about it kind of in the context of Flint, and I think that a lot of the local news media is paying attention, and there's been some amazing reporting and watchdogging that's been coming out of the Detroit Free Press and the Flint Journal, but a lot of this really comes down to people not being listened to, either by state officials and and in some case by the national media. There's so much information that's just out there Mm -hmm. if you look for it. Our series was built on data that we pulled from the EPA that was publicly available. We, We were able to get it through a FOIA request. We actually created a data base and made it public on our website so that people can tell their own stories using our data as well. So I think that these stories like Flint or other stories out of the Office of Civil Rights even can be a jumping off point for us to just start asking more about our communities and asking more about the world that we live in and looking for the data to back those questions up. We spoke with Talia Buford again in July 2017 after Michigan's attorney general brought involuntary manslaughter charges against five officials, one of whom, Health and Human Services Director Nick Lyon, had been reported saying, everyone has to die of something. Now at ProPublica, Talia Buford gave us some history of environmental justice as a state concern. It's 
popped up during the civil rights movement, but it really took hold in the early 80s when citizens in, in North Carolina really pushed back on the state choosing to dump contaminated soil uh, in a landfill near their homes. After that happened, the federal government started to take notice. There were some studies by EPA, and then there was a church group that also did a really instrumental study on just kind of where toxic facilities were cited around the country. And after that, President Bush, this is George H.W. Bush um, at that point, uh, decided to implement the Office of Environmental Equity, which is today the Office of Environmental Justice. That was in 92. Two years later, President Clinton gave us, I guess, the biggest win for the environmental justice community. Clinton signed an executive order in 94 that required federal agencies to consider environmental justice in all of their policies. Um, what he also did is he declared that environmental justice, um, injustice rather, was a violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which was huge because it's the same law that also sought to end segregation in schools. So this is a really powerful tool that advocates now had to use. During the second Bush administration, however, um, a lot of those protections got rolled back. They were um, watered down. In some instances, the Title VI office was basically dormant for years. Cases languished for literally decades, a decade rather, and there just wasn't any movement. On, on the issue. And uh, Democrats in Congress tried to push, push legislation forward to really mandate and legislate some of the protections that Clinton had tried to um, implement through the executive order and just really make them law and really crystallize them and give them some teeth. They weren't able to even get a vote on any of those issues during the time they were in Congress. And, and actually, there's never been a vote on an environmental justice bill in Congress ever since this has become an issue. Under Obama, things got a lot better, but they still weren't perfect. He was able to really focus on environmental justice during his administration. They cleared a backlog of civil rights complaints. They um, really elevated the idea of environmental justice. And the Office of Environmental Justice was really, really productive during that period. You know, they were able to go out and do, give grants and they, you know, had meetings and, and really talked to communities and, and really did a, a lot of education during that point. But um, even then, there was still a lot more that could have been done. I mean, there could have been a stronger executive order that was put forward to maybe have a federal environmental justice advisor at every federal agency, or we could have tried to push further to, to codify a lot of the things into law that the executive order professed. And those things were never done. Right. So there was a lot of progress. And then things just kind of, they kind of stalled a little bit. And, and, and now we're, the movement is at a point where a lot of the protections they had been relying on are possibly in retreat. Well, the fact that the Trump White House is looking to eliminate the EPA's Office of Environmental Justice, that's no surprise, and it fits with everything else. They're doubling down on this ideological twist, if you will, that you note predates them, that comes really from Bush Jr., this effort to say, oh, sure, all people deserve protection from environmental harm. Right. And some of the people we talked to, they, they kind of called it uh, the all lives mattering of right. uh, environmental justice, the idea that, yes, of course, everyone should not be subjected to, you know, intense environmental pollution. And, and yes, you do want to have protection for everyone. But by not focusing on the people who currently do not have those protections, you're basically ensuring that they never will. I just want to cite the work of Paul Mohai from the University of Michigan, who researched the the chicken of or the egg question and in terms of environmental racism. You know, do polluting industries cause white people to move out or people of color to move in for lack of options, for example, or do companies locate 
polluting industries and hazardous waste facilities in minority and poor communities. And he found that it's the latter, you know, that existing minority communities are targeted. It's not happenstance, you know, and it's class has a lot to do with it, but it's not class alone. There's this irreducibility of racist impacts that it seems to me the whole environmental justice movement is about. And I guess I'm kind of asking what one of the sources in your piece asks, do we have to prove this all over again? A lot of work has been done to kind of tie a lot of zoning issues to environmental justice. I mean, think about, you know, whatever community your listeners may have grown up in, think about where facilities were sited in in your community. You know, were they in the more affluent areas with tree-lined streets and along the waterfront, you know, in in a very affluent part of town? No, they were probably, you know, maybe they were on the waterfront, but they were on a a part near a landfill and near, you know, a power plant and near dilapidated buildings or more industrial area. And there are always homes still around there. So you have to think about the people who are maybe not allowed to, either through restrictive covenants or other more blatant reasons, not allowed to move into some of those nicer places, some of those more affluent places, and had to settle or had to move and make their homes and communities in places that were less desirable, less affluent areas or generally less desirable areas. So that's definitely a part of it. And when you don't take into account the history of the way that communities are formed or have been formed in our country, you're in danger of ignoring an entire section of the population that needs that special attention or needs at least that focused attention in order to make sure that they aren't being unduly harmed. Yeah, I cited the Mohai research because I think sometimes people think that environmental justice is about the feeling that some people are disproportionately impacted or it's just a sense that we have and that people should understand that there's plenty of data uh, to, mm-hmm. to back it up. I, I wanted to, to bring you back for just a moment. In the piece you talk about one of the early beginnings of the environmental justice movement in Afton, North Carolina, and you cite a pastor who is one of the people resisting a landfill there. And what he says is so important. He says, nobody thought people like us would make a fuss, you know, Mm -hmm. and so we really are talking about political voice. And that seems to be what the Flint story is about, too. It's not just the water. It's the way the community was treated when they complained. You know, it really is a Mm -hmm. story about political agency as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a main tenet of environmental justice, that the communities that are impacted have a voice, their voices are listened to, and, and they're taken into account before decisions are made. And I think that definitely that's, that's what you saw in Flint. That was where, you know, you had people complaining for months and months and months, and they were literally being dismissed and told that they were wrong and that there was nothing wrong, even though we now know that it was the, the state and then the, the federal, the regulators rather, who are doing something wrong. Environmental justice, when I think about it, uh, a lot of times I think of, you know, the idea of, you know, not in my backyard. There are certain communities that, um, you know, if something were to happen, they're able to call their local congressman or their, you know, city councilman or the mayor and get a direct line and complain, maybe because they have donated money for a campaign or maybe because they're politically connected in some other way, and their concerns are listened to. But there are other people who, whether they are, you know, minorities or whether they are low income or whether they just um, don't have a lot of political clout are often cast aside and their issues are not championed in the same way as someone who is a little bit more connected would be. And so when you have something not in my backyard from these more politically connected people, it still goes in someone's backyard. And those backyards are often the people who are low income, minority or speak a different language.
By April 2018, a judge was calling an agreement to screen Flint's children for learning disabilities a win-win situation for all sides. The state cut off free bottled water for residents, whether or not their tap water was safe. And to complete the circle, Michigan decided to let Nestle extract more spring water to sell for profit. It shouldn't take much to connect these things, which is what Peggy Case, president of Michigan Citizens for Water Conservation, did when she spoke with us in April 2018. First, we noted that when media said Nestle faced a fight moving into Michigan, her group was who they were talking about. That's how our group was formed, actually, back in the year 2000, when we discovered that Nestle was pumping 400 gallons per minute from a spring uh, well in Macosta County, Michigan. When they put up the bottle plant was when people realized they were even there. So our organization formed way back then to oppose it because there were already damages showing up to a stream and a, a lake and the environment was already being impacted with that level of withdrawals. It took a nine-year court battle and a million dollars to win a case. It was a partial victory. We didn't get Nestle out of there. They had to reduce their pumping by a half down to 218 gallons per minute. And the judge ruled that anything more than that is damaging to the environment. So that's a court precedent case that still stands on the books. And it's important to know that because two years ago, almost two years ago, Nestle applied for a permit to increase their pumping at a well in Everett, Michigan, 20 miles down the road where the original battle was, to 400 gallons per minute, the exact amount that they were told they really couldn't take from Acosta. It's spring water, which is bottled as Ice Mountain, and they were given an increase of 100 extra gallons per minute uh, with no public comment, no chance for anybody to go through the, the proper procedure. And it, we think that it really violated uh, the existing water withdrawal laws. Then they tacked on another 150 when they applied for the 400 permit. So it's, it gets very complicated after a while, and you get your head starts to spin. But the bottom line is that Nestle's wanting to take even more out of a stream that's already damaged. So, of course, we're contesting that again. And I just wanted to say that I'm really glad that you started your comments out by mentioning Flint, because that's been really significant for us. We have been connected to the Flint battles over uh, water from the beginning. We were uh, invited to come and consult in Flint four years ago when things first began to develop. We find it totally outrageous that Flint is still in the condition that it's in and people are getting shut off from their water. And you mentioned the high water bills. They're even higher than you suggested. Okay. There are some people we know are paying 350 wow. or $400 a month wow. for water that they still can't drink. And at the same time, the water that the city claims is good water now, people are being shut off from that water as well. It's not just that they're not delivering bottled water to people. They're also cutting people off at the tap in the same way that they've been doing in Detroit now for a number of years. We think those issues, Detroit and Flint, are intimately related to what's going on with Ice Mountain. Before the Flint crisis, the state had cut Flint off of revenue-sharing money that could have been used to fix their infrastructure. They get money taken away from them. Nestle gets profits given to them you know, in the form of free water. It's just completely unjust. 
there's not been a tremendous amount of coverage, but those stories that have existed that are deeper will mention that this has been a a twisty road for Nestle and that, in fact, they were initially rejected by the state's water withdrawal assessment tool that said you're going to harm streams, you're going to harm fish. But Nestle appealed that decision, and it's that appeal that is now being approved. So it's not as though, you know, it was always an obvious, you know, there's no environmental impact or no harm here. Yeah, the water assessment tool, which they, they got scored a D on it, that's the lowest grade you can get. So they didn't pass that. So they go to the site-specific review, which is not site-specific at all. It's a computer model. It takes place in an office. They never visit the actual site to determine what's really going on there. So, you know, in both cases, you're dealing with computer models. You're not dealing with reality. Whereas we walk out and walk around in the woods and tromp around in the streams and the wetlands and take reporters who are interested to look at the actual site where the streams are dried up, where, you you know, Nessie claims that water's pumping at 250 gallons per minute and you're looking at a puddle that's one foot wide and there's no water moving in it at all. They were given a lot of expert testimony, legal testimony extensive that was submitted as part of those 80,000 comments. They chose to ignore that as well. I guess it's a question of... uh... Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes, you know, because Nestle's natural resources manager for Michigan says, quote, we never take out more than nature's bringing back in, close quote. Yes, that's probably Arlene, right? Yes. Yes, we've we've gone to their dog and pony shows, is what we call them, where they do their PR work. It's very fancy charts and graphs, and they keep passing the same information out to people all the time. The other issue is that they create 3,000 plastic bottles. I can't remember whether it's in, in an hour or, or what. Ugh, uh, right. So there's the plastic bottle issue as well. Another story. What would you say to people who hear that now a company, Nestle or another company, is coming to their community to pump their water out from under them? Well, one of the things that has to happen is that people have to strengthen the laws that are supposed to be protecting the water. Because we do have the public trust doctrine in Michigan, which requires that the state of Michigan protect the water for all of us. And if that were actually honored, they wouldn't be able to come and take it and send it off in bottles elsewhere. And they wouldn't be allowed to destroy the environment. In 2008, however, the state of Michigan weakened its laws a bit. You know, they gave themselves the loophole to send it out as much as they wanted to in small plastic bottles that end up in the Pacific Ocean. There's some pieces of that Safe Drinking Water Act that could be used by the government to protect the water, but they don't choose to use those pieces of the law. So I would tell people, get those laws in place that actually make the government protect the water. Particularly, it's important that the state laws get strengthened and that the people who are paying attention continue to put pressure on the various agencies to do it. We'll end on that note of people paying attention and applying pressure. That was Peggy Case of Michigan Citizens for Water Conservation. Before her, you heard Talia Buford of ProPublica and Chris Savage of Electablog.com. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the National Media Watch Group FAIR. We're engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.